Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everybody doing? Can you hear me? All right, thank you for coming on this sweltering July evening. Yes, uh, we really uh, appreciate uh, you coming. Uh, so Fantastic Fiction at KGB, if, you, if this is your first time here, it's a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month. There's never a cover charge, it's always free. All we ask is that you buy a drink hard or soft and tip your bartender. So uh, your uh, drinks basically support the bar, keep the series going, because if the bar keeps going, then the series keeps going. So please do that if you can. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, I always say this, but it's always true. We don't invite people we don't like. Uh, Cadwell Turnbull and Dora Goss uh, are going to be reading for us tonight, and uh, I'm, I'm super excited. Um, so both have uh, have books out or coming out, and uh, they're going to they're going to read from from them this evening. Is that correct? I know I know you are Cadwell. Dora, you're going to be yes, reading from yes. Okay. Uh, all right. So. Uh, before we get started, um, just a couple quick announcements. We have a, a, a mailing list on our website. If you go to kgbfantasticfiction.org, uh, there should be a little pop-up that comes up, or if it doesn't come up, you can just click on mailing list. We send out like two or three emails a month just to remind you about the, uh, the, uh, the upcoming readings and, and future readings. Um, next month, uh, both Ellen and I will be traveling. So different we're places. Different, not together. <laughs> Although, who knows? Um, w- there's been some really weird synchronicities. Um, just briefly, uh, David Rivera and Angus McIntyre randomly saw each other in Spain, of all places, Barcelona. And I ran into Rajan Khanna in New, in New Hampshire. I mean, sorry, in uh, Rhode Island. So you never know who you're going to run into. Maybe we'll see each other. Anyway. Uh, so our guest host, uh, guest co-host next month will be um, Mercurio David Rivera, right here, and uh, Chandler Clang Smith, who is not here this evening. Uh, so we hope you will join us for that um, next month, August twenty-first. Lara Elena Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. September eighteenth, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. October sixteenth, Nicole Corner Stace and Barbara Krasnoff. November 20th, David Mack and Max Gladstone. December 18th, Paul Tremblay and Nathan Ballingrid. Cassandra Caw, uh, sorry, January 15th, Cassandra Caw and Richard Kadri. February 19th, James Patrick Kelly and P. Deli Clark. So yeah, we got a pretty awesome lineup for you guys. Hope you'll join us for that. Um, can't think of any other announcements. Do you have any other announcements, Alan? Okay. Uh, all right, so on to our first reader. Our first reader tonight is Cadwell Turnbull. Cadwell is the author of The Lesson. Can I just show everyone? I love this cover. Cadwell is the author of The Lesson, 
His short fiction has appeared in The Verge, Lightspeed, Nightmare, Asimov Science Fiction, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018, and The Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy 2019 forthcoming. He lives with his wife in Somerville, Massachusetts. Here's Cadwell. I've talked about it as Aliens in the Caribbean um, to give a longer description. It's a first contact novel set in the US Virgin Islands um, after an alien occupation and it explores the relationship between locals and the Ina, the aliens, over a five year span. <laughs> um, I'm gonna read from chapter two. Um, it's, it's from a, um, one of the protagonists, his name is Jackson. Um, two things you might need to know about him. He is doing research for a book that chronicles the history of invasions to US Virgin Islands. There have been several, including the aliens. And he's also just recently divorced from his wife, Aubrey. Jump around a little bit. Sandy's was only a two minute walk from Bella Blue, but Jackson took his sweet time getting there. He pushed open one of the double doors and the sound of lively chatter greeted him. Sandy's was a dive compared to Bella Blue, but it had a homey feel that made it much more inviting. Clever sayings and old-timey photos of St. Thomas hung on the walls. Warning, said a sign in big, bold letters. The consumption of alcohol may cause pregnancy. No trespassing, said another. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. The crocodile skull dangled from the ceiling. Jackson had no idea of its authenticity. In the back were two pool tables, which almost always had people playing on them. Tonight was no exception. The chairs that curved around the U-shaped bar were empty, except for an older white man at one end and a younger looking woman at the other. The bartender was busy pouring drinks for a couple who stood near the door. Jackson watched the woman on the far end of the bar. She had her dreadlocks pulled back into a ponytail of sorts the thick knots falling behind her like the dormant limbs of some many-tentacled sea monster. She looked sullen but at ease, a greenie in one hand. Even from where he sat, he could see those piercing light brown eyes that seemed to glow faintly in the bar's low light. Her skin was dark like Jackson, but it gleamed as if she were some goddess who had stepped into the world of men only the day before and had not yet begun to age. Her black tank top exposed arms corded with muscles. Seeing her powerful arms, Jackson finally considered the prospect of losing his head. He felt the skin of his neck go taut, could almost feel her hands on him, the flesh tearing as easily as bread. He knew that the Ina were powerful and not opposed to harming humans, and he recognized the same self-assuredness, the same discreet threat in the woman across the bar. Just like other Ina he had glimpsed on island, she carried herself with the promise of violence. But no one mistook Mira for just any Ina. No other Ina fascinated and terrified the islanders the way she did. At the moment, most of the people in Sandy seemed at ease with the ambassador's presence, but Jackson knew better. He knew what hid under the smiles and conversation, the same quiet terror that was making his legs shake as he took his seat at the bar. He ordered a greenie, and the bartender slid him a long-necked bottle of Heineken, 
cold and sweating with a little foam peeking from its lip. Jackson let it settle and then took his swig while giving the ambassador quick glances. Soon he gave up all his ambitions, measuring himself against the intimidating creature and finding that he was not up to the task. There would be no confrontation, no revelations this night. His sane mind had prevailed. Sandy's had tables all around. Most but not all were empty. The couple at the bar had gone into the back room to watch a group of older men play pool, but a gang of young people were talking loudly at a corner booth. Every now and then, one of them looked in the ambassador's direction. Another couple ate their dinner quietly at the other end of the room, behind the ambassador's back. They too kept their eye on her, sneaking furtive glances. The older white man smiled in Jackson's direction, and Jackson recognized the dirty blonde hair and missing teeth. He was a friend of the bar's owner. Jackson used to come into Sandy's a lot when he was teaching at Charlotte Amali High School. The man was always here then, chatting up the owner, an older white woman with a loud voice and a warm smile whose name actually was Sandy. She had lived on the island most of her life. The white man lifted his glass to Jackson. Ain't see you here in a while, he said in the island lilt. Jackson smiled. The man was either a local Frenchie, which wouldn't be surprising here in Frenchtown, or an expat who had lived here long enough to pick up the talk. Jackson figured it was the latter, since he could detect a bit of awkwardness in the way the words rolled off the man tongue. Yeah, it's been a long while, Jackson said. Been busier lately with all that been going on. The man nodded and glanced at the ambassador. Jackson nodded back, assuming that the glance was intentional. The man tilted his head and smiled big, revealing a mostly complete set of teeth. Then he returned to his drink. Jackson quietly finished his beer and ordered two more. After the third Heineken, he switched back to a rum and coke. Without meaning to, he continued his careful observation of the ambassador. Another drink? The bartender asked the ambassador. He was white and definitely an expat, but had been working at Sandy's for several years now. He had a laid-back disposition that Jackson liked, and he seemed completely at home with the ambassador, which impressed Jackson. The ambassador looked up at the bartender, smiled and said, yes, give me another one. The bartender nodded. Most other Ina could not pull off an act like this. Even in their human skin, they couldn't be mistaken for the real thing. They were too slow, too jerky in their movements. Not the ambassador. She could pass from the islander if only her face weren't so infamous. The bartender gave Mara the greenie, and she held it in her hand as if to drink, but then put down the bottle. Jackson watched her do this, looking for something that would give her away, reveal what she truly was. He didn't realize she had turned her eyes to him until it was too late. He felt cold dread move through him before his body reacted and then he quickly averted his eyes. He felt the seconds tick by as he fixed his attention on a painting above the heads of the dining couple behind Mira. He waited. After some time, when he couldn't take it anymore, he allowed himself a quick glance at her. She was still watching him with no expression at all. Something in her gaze caught him. He had stared into her eyes and turned to stone. Ants crawled up his back and he was powerless to stop them. The world around him disappeared into those eyes. Before he screamed, she pulled her attention away, releasing him. 
As if nothing had happened at all, she returned to her drink, staring into the middle distance between them, going back to whatever thoughts were occupying her mind. Jackson felt hot behind the ears. He looked around, embarrassed. No one was looking at him, but the room was quiet. He found a conspiracy in that silence. Perhaps he had drunk too much, but something broke in him then. His heart thumped with panic rage, and the urge flooded back into him, filling all the spaces his terror had left. He wanted to run into traffic, to tip over a cliff, to slide a knife against flesh to watch it bleed. He heard Aubrey's voice in the back of his mind, begging him not to, and he found himself arguing with the voice, shouting back against it. She had embarrassed him, and she knew she had done so. It was a very human thing to do, too human. How dare she? Who did she think she was? It was their earth, not hers, not the Ina's. Who gave her the right to be here? Who gave her the right to deceive them all? And who are you to lecture me now that you've left me? I loved you, and you left me. The words came out easily, a continuation of the argument in his head. You've been here a while, haven't you? He asked the question loud enough for everyone in the bar to hear. Mira turned her eyes and head slowly this time to look at him. Not quite normal, not quite human. It was a deception. He knew the truth. You've been on earth for centuries, he said, pressing on. The bartender stopped polishing the glass in his hand. The older white man perked up and the couple at the near table swung their attention Jackson's way. The background pop music seemed louder now since even the young people at the corner booth had stopped talking. As if in answer, Mira got up and took a hundred dollar bill out of her purse and put it on the bar. The movement so calm that Jackson shrank back in his seat, afraid of what would come. She smiled graciously at the bartender and moved slowly towards Jackson's side of the bar. His body tensed, his heart thumping hard and fast. He closed his eyes, listening to the soft footsteps approach. He could feel her closeness as she walked behind his chair. He waited in that tense silence for what felt like a long time, but nothing happened. When he opened his eyes, she was already headed toward the door, her back to him. Before he understood what he was doing, he got up from his chair. He rushed towards her, reaching out and grabbing her by the arm. Wait, he said. She was careful when she turned. It was graceful, slow, so human now, so painfully human. When she spoke, it was quiet, a secret for only the two of them. You can go back, she said, her eyes never leaving his. You can take your hands off me and drink your beer, and I'll leave in peace. Nothing else will happen. Jackson's eyes were wide. His body shook. Nothing about how she said this was odd at all. It was gentle. But he felt all the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. A chill slid all the way down to his legs. He let go. Good night, she said, and left. The room sat in silence for a few seconds longer. Their murmuring kept back into the space. Soon talking, though hushed, had resumed. Jackson had no difficulty guessing the subject of that talk. He returned to his chair and sat back down, 
staring forward, too afraid to leave. Quietly, he drank two more beers, his head low and shoulders high, sweat trickling down from his armpits. When the conversation in the bar felt as though it had returned to its normal tenor, he paid his bill and slipped out, the voices trailing behind him like a thunderstorm at sea. Through the night, Jackson's, dream, Jackson's dreams were filled with faces. It was as if the entire history of his island spoke to him from the darkness of his fitful sleep. Her voice was loudest of all. You can still go back. Where, he kept asking, in that purgatory between sleep and wakefulness. But he found that her voice only repeated the plea. You can still go back. Jackson had come across Mira by accident during his research. The earliest appearance was from the journal of Dr. Hans Balthazar Hornbeck, a Danish man appointed to the district to be district physician of St. John in 1825, back when the Danes still owned the Virgin Islands. In Hornbeck's early years as a physician, he noticed stories of a woman who hailed slaves on the island. He got a description from a slave boy he had been treating. The woman was slender, with smooth, dark brown skin and piercing amber eyes. Another patient described her as stout, with a mane of locked hair. Hornbeck himself never met the woman, but noted in his journal that he would have loved the privilege of meeting the witch. Several reports from physicians on St. Thomas, St. John, and St. Croix reference a powerful Obia woman healing six slaves. Obia was a term used to describe women with healing or cursing powers and a natural inclination, inclination towards magical arts. It was all superstitious nonsense, Jackson thought at first, but the possibility soon began to nag at him. The account that really raised Jackson's suspicions was one written in 1913 by Danish journalist Olaf Link during his visit to the island. Link's contact on the island was Dr. Christian Winkle. At the time, Winkle was seeing John's physician and police superintendent. The journalist met him at his home, where they drank cocktails made of Jonian rum. Afterward, they rode horseback across the island, visiting one of the four still-running plantations, the Lamshire, where Dr. Winkle and Link agreed to spend the night to treat a sick man named Oliver. Oliver, a black man in his mid-40s, slept fitfully in a back room of the plantation house trying to fight off an unspecified illness. Dr. Winkle watched over the man until late in the night. According to Link's account, the man was a much respected project head on the plantation who kept operations going smoothly. For many blacks on the island, plantation work was still a mode of employment. Whatever had gotten hold of Oliver had, crept, had kept him off of work for a full two weeks. Winkle broke the news to Mr. White, the overseer of the plantation. The man would not live. Whatever it is, Dr. Winkle said, won't be cured. He is destined for the next world. Mr. White stared at Dr. Winkle. Link said the man's expression changed, became darker. Mr. White was a local St. Jonian, born on the island. He knew things about the place that Dr. Winkle, a recent expat, could not know. When he spoke, his voice was soft, barely above a whisper. I will send for someone. Late that night, a woman came to the plantation. 
Link's description was detailed, the best Jackson had come across. Long, dark locks, his strong face and amber eyes. Tall for a woman, with his presence that Link described as otherworldly. Like someone who did not belong anywhere on this earth, he said. Her voice was soft, but not weak. It commanded the attention of everyone in the room. Mr. White took the woman to the sick man. She stood over the bed and observed him for long minutes. What was written in the account had none of the flair of Obia stories told second or third hand. The description mentioned none of the usual trappings of witchcraft, no animal bones or secret words spoken into the night. The woman put her hand on the man and closed her eyes. Link recalled how hot the room was, how all the men were sweating in their clothes in the candlelight, yet the woman was as dry as if she were sitting in a cool breeze. She opened her eyes not long after closing them. Give him some water. He will come out of this just fine. She got up and left. From a window on the first floor, Link watched her walk into the night. The darkness outside didn't hinder her. She walked confidently down the path away from the plantation, the moonlight at her back. The next day, Oliver was completely healed. Jackson had gathered a lot of his research from historical societies on the three islands. The, this account was written in God's Dance Magazine, a Danish publication. It was the most convincing piece of writing he had found. The description also felt familiar somehow, as if someone had presented a blurry photo that, if squinted at just right, would reveal a face. When it finally clicked, the face staring back at Jackson was the ambassador's. You can always go back, said the voice. In the darkness, eyes were on him, and out of that abyss came grasping hands. Thank you. Thank you. So that has come out, and it, the publisher is? Blackstone. Blackstone. Cool. Oh, the audio. The, I know they've been doing print. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay, we're going to take about 10 minutes or so for um, a break, 10 or 15 minutes. Please have a drink, stay hydrated, and we'll be back with uh, Theodora Goss. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fan... Thank you. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, we, our next guest is Theodore Goss, who is a World Fantasy and Locus Award-winning author of novels, short stories, essays, and poetry. Her most recent collection, Snow White Learns Witchcraft, retells and recasts fairy tales and her forthcoming novel, The Sinister Mystery of the Memorizing, I'm sorry, Mesmerizing Girl, will be published in October. She has been a finalist for the Nebula Award, the Crawford, the Scion, and the Mythiopeic Awards, as well as on the Tiptree Award honor list. And her work has been translated into 12 languages. She teaches literature and writing at Boston University and the, and the Stone Coast MFA program. Before I sh we welcome her, I just want you to know her book's for sale here. Uh, the new book, the, uh, it's a collection, Snow White Learns Witchcraft. So I hope that you will all buy it after the reading. And please welcome Theodora Goss. Thank 
you so much, everyone. Okay, is this, I always have to adjust it because I'm short. This, this is working though, right? Yes. Can you hear me? Okay, so uh, first thing, does anyone want like book swag yeah. stuff? Okay, I'm just gonna pass it. If you don't want it, don't take it, but just pass it to other people. I have bookmarks, which are Snow White Learns Witchcraft bookmarks. I have book plates, pass them around. And I have this funny thing, which the, uh, I'm gonna forget the name. It's the Brooklyn, Speculative Fiction Workshop, put these together. Uh, they do something called the Kaleidocast, which is a podcast. They podcast a story of mine. And this is like cartoon me. So if anyone, I have a lot of them. So I don't know why you would want cartoon me, but if anybody does, like if you want like a signature or something, that's there. Um, I actually, so Matt asked me to bring some books. I only have a few because I couldn't carry that many. Um, but I do in fact have my first novel, which was The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, which if you don't know anything about it, um, this is, these are the adventures of Mary Jackal, Diana Hyde, Justine Frankenstein, I can hear the rain starting, <laughs> Catherine Moreau, and um, Beatrice Rappuccini in late 19th century London, where they meet Sherlock Holmes. Uh, they meet each other as well, uh, and they help him solve a mystery and figure out um, why they, these girl monsters, were all created. Um, and the second book, the European, European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman, takes them um, on an adventure in um, uh, Vienna and Budapest. Um, and uh, I had to do a lot of research for this in Vienna and Budapest. A lot of it involved eating pastries. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those I have a couple copies of each, um, and I also have Snow White Learns Witchcraft, which is the book that I'm reading from today. So this was kind of a, a project that was near and dear to my heart. Um, basically, what I did was say, you know, I've got a bunch of stories that are based on fairy tales and also poetry. Um, and they're all based on fairy tales in some way, or my attempts to write fairy tales. Um, and Snow White Learns Witchcraft actually comes, the title comes from the first poem in here, which is about Snow White. Uh, it's about Snow White when she gets older, and you know, she married the prince, she had her happily ever after of sorts, um, and the princess now died. Uh, he was the king, and she's kind of this older woman. She's not the fairest in the land anymore. Someone else has taken over doing that. Um, and she's like, what do I do with my life? And she learns witchcraft. But what I'm going to read from today is a story called A Country Called Winter. And this is based on... Oh, I'm okay. Uh, this is based on um, The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, so what I did was I took some of the characters from the Snow Queen and I was very interested in the Snow Queen herself, but this is contemporary. It's about a girl named Vera. Vera uh, came to the US when she was a little girl. She came from a country whose name is not really pronounceable in English, so people just call it winter because that's the meaning of the name of her country. She lives with her mom who's a widow. She doesn't really know what happened to her dad. Um, and uh, she has grown up in Boston, lived this kind of fairly normal American life. Her mother, there are all these mysteries about where her mother comes from and uh, the country of winter. Her mother hasn't explained a whole lot to her. What I'm gonna do is read you three sections. So they do take you through the story, but there's a lot that's left out because I can't read you the whole story tonight. Um, and uh, 
one of the things that Vera learns that, that's not necessarily in the parts of the story you're getting uh, is that she, she is actually the hereditary queen of winter. Um, her family, uh, her, her father was the king, he was overthrown, and throughout the course of the story, there's a revolution in winter and she is invited back to be queen. The portions you're getting are about her relationship with a guy named Kay. So I'm gonna read you those. <laughs> I have always preferred winter, probably because I was born in, capital W, winter, in February, when my mother tells me the capital city was encased in ice and the doctor had to come by electric sleigh through a snowstorm. I love to see the first leaves change, love to feel the cold breath of autumn coming. Seasonal allergies have something to do with it. In June and July, I live on Clarendon, the pollen from all the blossoming trees gives me a terrible headache. But after September comes, it seems as though the air regains a crystalline quality. It feels like clear water, like something hard and soft at the same time, feathers that can cut. Then the leaves turn and fall like a splendid sunset lying on the sidewalks, and the first snows come, white and fresh, as though the earth is putting on her wedding gown. Christmas has always been my favorite holiday. In my country, gifts are not brought by Santa Claus. The lady in the moon herself comes down from the sky in her silver sleigh, drawn by snow geese that have put on their white plumage for winter. Next to her sits the white fox who eats the moon each month before the lady renews it again. With the help of all the stars who look like elves in sparkling tights and dresses. She distributes gifts to children throughout the land. Although my mother had given up many of our native customs, each year she decorated the tree with a moon on top, papier-mâché stars hanging from the branches, felt reindeer, and gingerbread men. We would, leave our el <laughs> we would leave out elderberry wine for the lady in the moon and a plate of oat cakes with a wedge of cheese for the geese and fox. The next morning, the oat cakes always had small bites taken out of them, and the cheese was eaten into a crescent shape. I met Kay during the first snowfall. He bumped into me as I was walking to class, thinking about my paper on the rhetoric of mourning and the poetry of Emily Dickinson. I slipped and fell on the icy sidewalk. Unskilled, he said, then switched into English. I'm sorry, how stupid of me. I should have watched where I was going. Let me help you up. He took off his right glove and reached down a pale, firm hand. I recognized him from my class on the Transcendentalists, which was a 500 level course for both upper class undergrads and MA students. He was the one who always did the reading and talked about the Transcendentalists as though their ideas mattered for more than the final exam. I had noticed him. He was, after all, tall and blonde and very good looking. He was hard not to notice. But I had thought of him as simply another undergrad. What made him so much more exciting than the other boys I had dated? Well, he was European, more sophisticated, more intellectual. He could talk about postmodern literary theory, although after several beers, his utterances became as convoluted as Lacan's. His area was modern European literature, 
He had been taking courses in the American Studies Department simply for a distribution requirement. But he could also be moody, go silent for days at a time, sitting in his dorm room window seat and looking out at the snow. I asked him once if all that theory was good for him. Still, there was something in me that was attracted to him. His family came from a small village in Denmark beside a glacier where the primary industry was the ski season. Sometimes he seemed like a breath of cold mountain air. We had been dating for several months and our relationship was going well. He was going to stay in Boston for Christmas and I had already told him that he could come celebrate with me and my mother when Gerda showed up. It was after Thanksgiving break. We were sitting in our transcendentalism class, waiting for Professor Feldman, Bob to those of us who were grad students, but only in office hours and at departmental cocktail parties, to show up when in walked a girl. Well, a woman, but she was not much older than me. She was wearing a pair of red boots that came up over her knees, and her black hair was cut in Louise Brooks Bob. She stood in front of the class and said, Hi, everyone. I have some bad news. Professor Feldman had a heart attack over the break. We don't know yet when he'll be able to come back to class. I was his TA last semester, so I'm going to fill in for him. I'm a grad student, so don't bother calling me professor. You can just call me Gerda. All right, let's see who did the reading. Pop quiz. She was in my department, but I hadn't met her. She had passed her oral exam over the summer and was already working on her dissertation. After the class, I introduced myself. Oh, right, Vera, she said. You and the other MA students don't need to take the final exam. Just turn in a 20-page paper on the last day of class. Have you written a prospectus already? No? Well, how about turning it in next Friday? Later, Kay told me that she had robber girl tattooed across her shoulder blades, right where you could see it if she wore a low-cut dress or maybe a bathing suit. It was the name of her rock band. Yeah, she had a rock band with a couple of students from the Berklee College of Music. She was the lead singer and played guitar. They toured during the summer months during covers of the Eurythmics and other 80s groups. I wondered how he knew. When had he seen her bare back? But it was the sort of information Gerda volunteered freely. Perhaps she had simply told him during office hours. That was after the semester was over, of course, after we had picked up our final papers from her box in the departmental mailroom. I was relieved to have gotten an A on the paper and for the semester. Gerda was much too smart to mess around with a university's sexual harassment policy. No. She just stood in front of the class in her high red boots, wearing skinny jeans or a short denim skirt and a black turtleneck, talking about feminism and sexuality and Emily Dickinson's poems, which was the topic of her, uh, of her doctoral dissertation. If Dickinson could have fucked death, she would have, Gerda said once, clearly not caring what anyone said on her course evaluations. She was a good teacher, I'll give her that. She found meanings in Dickinson's poems that I had not seen. I had admired them for their artistic and intellectual engagement. Goethe revealed their incandescence. 
Kay always paid particular attention in that class, but then he had paid attention to Professor Feldman as well. It was only later that I realized there was more to it than caring about Dickinson's subtext. Just before Christmas, he told me that we should take a break. But he had to focus on exams and didn't have time for a relationship. There was no celebration with my mother after all. He insisted that he had to study. By the time I came back to campus in January, he and Gerda were dating. When I found out from my friend Stephanie, who was a work-study receptionist in the main office and knew all the departmental gossip, I spent a week crying myself to sleep at night, sobbing into my pillow. But Kay didn't know that. I didn't bother asking him for an explanation, and recriminations have never been my style. I have always prided myself on my ability to let things go. After all, I've had plenty of practice. When I was a little girl, I let go of an entire country. One day, we ran into each other at the new cafe that had opened on the edge of campus on Commonwealth Avenue. Blue Moon, it was called. Organic, fair trade, locally sourced. There were scones with chia seeds in them, scones with acai berries, smoothies that combined mango and kale. Vera, he said, I've been meaning to text you. I already know, I said, about you and Gerda. I really like you, he said, as though it were an apology. Like, really like. But Gerda, I don't know. We're just on the same wavelength. But Gerda. I suppose at some level I had known from the moment she walked in with her high red boots. I had simply not wanted to see that he was drifting away from me like snow. Even when she was standing at the front of the class and he was the undergrad challenging her phallic interpretation of Emily Dickinson's A Narrow Fellow in the Grass. Sometimes a snake is just a snake, he would say. There was something between them, a solidarity. You could tell that despite their differences, they lived in the same intellectual and emotional time zone. They synced. I hope you're happy with her. I said, I'm sure she'll be happy with you. Why wouldn't she be? Any disagreements would be smoothed over by his blue Danish eyes, the perfection of his cheekbones. I'm skipping a section. Okay, next section. And then spring failed to come. In April, the snow did not melt. The forecaster shrugged as though to say something, sometimes that happens in Massachusetts. But in May, it did not melt either. The temperature did not get above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. When June came and the temperature still hovered around freezing, the weather channel started talking about freak cold snaps, global cooling, a new ice age. By that time, I assumed Kay had gone back to Denmark for the summer break. Of course, I was still on campus studying for my oral exam and RAing for the high school juniors and seniors, taking summer courses, trying out college for the first time. Anyway, I lived in Boston. I had nowhere else to go. But one day, I got a text on my cell phone. V need to talk to you, please, K. Why, I texted back. To talk about us. Well, that wasn't exactly an answer, was it? What about? Please, I'll buy coffee, blue moon, at three. Fine. What was I going to do, refuse to see him altogether? That would just prove to him that I cared, and I didn't. Well, I did, 
but I didn't want him to know that. Anyway, it was uncivilized. Only high school girls who had watched too much reality TV behaved like that. <laughs> he was waiting for me at a table near the front of the cafe with a small cappuccino topped with cinnamon, my favorite. He still had perfect cheekbones, but just above his right cheekbone, at the corner of his eye, was a rectangular band-aid. Had he cut himself shaving? No, it was too high for a shaving cut. Well, I would not ask him about it. I was no longer his girlfriend after all. Let Gerda do that. All right, what is it, I said, sitting down. He slid the cappuccino over to me. I know I messed up, he said. I should have told you about Gerda. I'm really sorry. Really, really sorry. Is there any way we can start over? I looked at him, astonished. Start over? Like what? Like it never happened? What about Gerda anyway? Where is she? And what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be in Denmark? That's over, he said. I broke it off with her. She was, well, she was kind of nuts and also kind of cruel. It's as though she kept sticking this knife into me, metaphorically, I mean, with a thing she would say, telling me she loved me and then that she didn't want to see me anymore, then calling me the next day and telling me to come over. It's like she wanted to punish me for caring about her. And she was so negative. She would laugh at me for things like my mom sending me cookies from home. I mean, the embassy, not home home. She called me sentimental. I don't know where she is now. She said she was going on tour with Robber Girl and then she left. The last I heard from her, she was in Austin, Texas. She hasn't texted me since. But honestly, I don't care where she is. Come on. I know I messed up, but I care about you more than I've ever cared about anyone. Please, can we start over? I sip my cappuccino. I didn't know what to say. On the one hand, he had behaved like a complete asshole. On the other hand, he had very blue eyes. <laughs> with long lashes. He looked at me pleadingly. That band-aid was incongruous on his perfect face. I have to think about it, I finally said, pushing my coffee cup, putting my coffee cup down and pushing back my chair. I tried to be nonchalant, but I almost tipped it over as I stood up. Sure, he said. I get it, I really do. Take as long as you need to. Like, a week? I'll text you in a week. Thanks for the coffee, I said, I'm going now. You'll let me know in a week, right? He said, looking up at me anxiously. I think I was scared of how I felt about you. I think that's why I messed up with Gerda. A week, I said, making no promises. But I could already feel myself weakening. He looked at me so appealingly after all, like a child who wanted approval. Would it be so hard to care about him again? Had I ever actually stopped? I texted Stephanie to catch up on the departmental gossip. What happened between Gerda and Kay? It only took her a moment to respond. I heard they had a big fight. He broke up with her, she threw her Norton Anthology of American Literature at him, and it hit a mirror in his dorm room. He got some glass close to his eye, had to go to the emergency room to get it out, plus a couple of stitches. That girl is batshit crazy. 
Why hadn't he told me about that? Probably because he was ashamed of it, of having gotten involved with someone who would pull a stunt like that, and also of being hurt by a girl. I'm going to skip a long section here and read the final section, actually. Um, so you are getting kind of this whole story arc. You're just getting little bits and, well, kind of big <laughs> bits and pieces of it that aren't there. Um, but this is the part where um, uh, Vera learns that she is actually the queen of winter, the hereditary queen of winter. Um, and she has to make a decision. And the, the decision is, is she going to leave Boston, which is the home she's known, and go back to this foreign country um, and be queen? And uh, in the end, she decides that her country needs her. And in fact, um, she's going to be queen. And there are some other things that happen. But one of the, the problems is that country, uh, sorry, winter is not just, it's not just a physical location. It's kind of a country of the imagination. And you need a queen of winter in, in order to make the world operate correctly, especially the seasons. And that's why the seasons are messed up. So she decides to go back. A week later, I got a text on my cell phone. It was still my old iPhone with an international plan. I was getting 3G even in winter, with a capital W. Holy crap, it's all over the Daily Free Press. You're like a queen. Do I call you majesty or what? Summer finally here. I was standing in the greenhouse attached to the palace under the quince trees. I had spent the morning in a meeting with a finance minister and would spend the afternoon in a meeting with the ambassadors of Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Should I write back? At least to tell Kay that I was meeting with a representative of his country. <laughs> or not. I doubt he was texting me to hear about politics. Why was he texting me? Oh yeah, it was a week after our meeting in the Blue Moon Cafe. <laughs> Winter here. In royal palace, coronation yesterday, so yes, I'm officially queen. Your majesty, ma'am, whatever. Winky face. The response came almost as soon as I had written mine. So no hope of getting back together, I guess. Ma'am. I had to laugh. The gall of him. I still cared about him. I did, didn't I? Despite the whole Gerda incident. But at a royal reception, I had met the crown prince of Trollheim, whose name was Edric. Trolls are a lot better looking than you would expect. <laughs> he had really pretty blue eyes and excellent taste in British rock bands. We had a long discussion of existentialism once we'd escaped from the reception with a handful of canapes. I didn't know if I wanted to marry him, but I wasn't ruling out the possibility. He wasn't sure how he felt about the arranged marriage either, but we'd already decided to spend a weekend skiing together. I'd learned to ski as a child and wasn't sure if I remembered how, but if he had to teach me, that wouldn't be such a bad thing, would it? Anyway, Winter needed an ally against the Frost Giants, or maybe I would look into joining NATO. <laughs> you can't date me from Boston, I texted back. What if I came to winter? Do you even know how to get here? Pretty sure there's a Lufthansa flight to Finland. From there, I don't know, reindeer? It could be like a quest or like a road trip, except with sleighs. I looked around me at the glass walls of the greenhouse. Inside, it was all trees and leaves and blossoms. Outside, the snow was just starting to melt. At this altitude, summer came late, even in ordinary years. Here I was the Snow Queen, what I was born to be, at least according to my mother and Baroness Hapsenkoff, 
I did not feel like much of a queen. However, in the last week, I had met with members of parliament from the three major parties, the heads of various labor unions, the generals who had participated in the recent coup, the matriarch and her council of priestesses, the director of the central bank, and at my insistence, a selection of ordinary citizens chosen by lottery from university professors to plumbers and seamstresses. I had been interviewed by both major newspapers, all three state television stations, and an online journal called WW for Women of Winter. <laughs> I did not know if I would make a good queen, but I was starting to see what needed to be done, how to restore the economy of my country. It would take a while, but these things always did. Slowly, Winter would regain its former reputation and independence from the IMF. <laughs> All right, I texted. If you can figure out how to get here, come find me. Would Kay make it to my palace of white stone veined with quartz, or get lost along the way among the snows? If he made it, would I choose him or Edric, who was, after all, a prince? I didn't know, but today I was the queen of winter, and I had more important things to think about. For a moment, I stood among the quince trees, whose white blossoms looked like snow on the branches and fell like snow to the ground. Outside, a dusting of snow fell from the roof like blossoms blown by the wind. And then, I turned and walked into my palace, where my future, whatever it was, awaited me. This was wonderful. Hang out. Don't leave now. You don't want to go out. Have another drink and wait till it stops raining. So I'll see you all next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always... Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.